Man, if there's anything like me, there have been many times, many days, most days, where there's this dialogue going on inside my head. I'm always trying to convince myself that I am actually strong enough. I am actually good enough. I am actually talented enough that I can do these things that I'm afraid I can't do. And on those days when I realize, oh, I'm not enough, <laughs> it, it, terif- it terrifies me. And I want to try to hide, hide that, distract myself from it, whatever. But what we just sang is really the truth. That we're not enough. But he never asked us to be. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot accomplish his purposes on our own. And that's exactly why he says, come. And these words we just sang, I need you, are not. It's not a negative thing, but it is our freedom. It is where we finally come to grips with, okay, I'm not enough, but he sure is. And as we sing to him, as we worship him, we rest from that feeling that we always have to be enough. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your grace that covers over all of our insufficiencies, all our sin, all our screw-ups. We thank you for your strength that is able to overcome all the obstacles that we can't on our own. We thank you for your kindness that is able to overcome our bad attitudes. We thank you for the ways that you see us and you're working in us. And we can freely and joyfully say, we need you, God. But man, that's not a bad thing. That's our freedom. And that's where our freedom starts. And so God, may you free us from the need to be enough, knowing that you are enough. And may we place our hope and our faith and our trust in you alone, Jesus. We love you. We praise you. Open up our hearts and minds for the word that you have for us today. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. 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 Thank you, guys. You may have a seat. Thank you, worship team. Man. And good morning, everybody. It is great to be with you guys. And today, believe it or not, we are starting a new sermon series which I feel like I'm always so pumped about starts a new sermon series. I'm not sure if you are, but I am. We're starting a series called The Armor of God. The Armor of God. I'm glad. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, guys. (laughs) Now, I'm always flexible for how God leads, but our plan is that we're going to be in this series for about six weeks. But this is going to be a little bit different because a lot of series we will spend six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks on a whole book of the Bible. Meaning every week we're covering large chunks of scripture, unpacking it, applying it to our lives. But in this series we're spending six weeks on just 11 verses. That's it. That at the very end of Paul's letter to the church in the ancient city of Ephesus, chapter 6 verses 10 to 20, Paul lays out, some things there that, man, I want us to slow down and make sure we understand, and not just understand, but put into practice. So we're going to spend six weeks on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. And why it's so vital that we understand this is because Paul is laying out for us that there is a war going on around us, and are we prepared for it? 
Now, when we talk about wars or battles, most of us, our first thought are the kinds of conflicts that we see on a regular basis, whether it be like family members you know, fighting against each other or the political left versus the right going at it, Ukraine versus Russia, you know, Starbucks versus Duncan. <laughs> like, these are the kind of conflicts we see, but these, none of these are primarily what Paul is talking about. He's talking about a battle that is within the realm we can't see. It's a spiritual war. In Ephesians 6, he's referring to a war in the spiritual realm between the kingdom of our God, our good and holy God, and the kingdom of his adversary, often referred to as the devil or Satan. Now, just saying that, my bet is that some people in here automatically, like, you're wondering, like, is this a fantasy world or is this reality? I mean, come on, Kirk. Like, we are modern people. You expect us to fall for this spiritual realities thing? And the devil? <laughs> really? Like, in our minds, automatically, I'm betting there's some people imagining a guy in tight, fiery red spandex, horns, maybe a stogie sticking out of his mouth, right? Like, it, it sounds more like something from Marvel than real life. At least for a lot of us. But, and if that's where you're coming from, I want us to consider for a second that most of human history and most civilizations across history have believed that there is some sort of spiritual reality other than the physical one that we can see. Which puts us in our time as somewhat of a minority in believing that there's not such a thing. So at least let's consider for a moment, could there be a spiritual reality behind the physical one? And in doing so, what does God's word say about it? Because even if we aren't quite sure what we think about the whole spiritual thing, at least it, let's take God's word seriously and see what it says about who God's adversary is and the reality of the spiritual conflict going on around us. So we're not looking at what does pop culture say, but what does God's word say? And we're going to take that seriously. And the danger is, is that if we don't really understand what God's Word says about who God's adversary is and how He works, then we run the risk of either underestimating or overestimating the reality of our adversary. Quick story. When I was in middle school, I was a part of the football team. In almost every practice, the coach would hold one-on-one -on -one drills where he'd get everybody in a circle and he'd call out two random names and those people would come to the circle, face each other, square up, and when he blew the whistle, they'd go at each other and see who could knock the other one back or maybe even to the ground. Well, one day, we got doing the drill and he called my name. So I went out in the middle of that circle, whew, whew, trying to psych myself up. When I was really kind of pretty nervous, I was like, who's going to be my opponent here? I wasn't very big, right? So who's going to be my opponent here? And then the coach calls a girl's name. That's right. We had one girl on my middle school football team. And when he called her name, I'm not going to lie, I was like, what gives, coach? <laughs> what are you trying to say, coach? And anyway, we square up. And as we do, I'm thinking to myself, like, I'll try to be gentle. And we square up. He blows the whistle. I get off, and before I know it, boom! She knocks me back. I did not say she knocked me to the ground, okay? She did not knock me to the ground. She, 
she knocked me back, okay? <laughs> but why? Because I underestimated my opponent. And man, I see it happening all the time in the lives. Of, it's happened to me. It's happened in so many lives of Christians around me that we, when we underestimate who God's enemy is, we are likely to be knocked off our feet too. And when we say, ah, man, I'm not sure if I believe this stuff. Well, it still might be real, <laughs> whether we believe it or not. Or man, if, I don't really care about this. All of a sudden we become ignorant to how he is working in our lives and we are left unprepared when the battle comes. But I've also seen Christians not just underestimate, but I've seen others who are prone to overestimate these spiritual forces of evil in the world. And when we overestimate, we become intimidated or overly afraid. But God doesn't want us to fall into either ditch of under or overestimation. He wants us to walk firmly with Christ, fearlessly with Christ, and be effective in what he has called us to do. But if, in order to do that, we need to understand who, our, who this enemy is, how he works, and how God has equipped us to stand firm. And so this whole series is really about how God has equipped us. But before we start getting into each of these individual uh, pieces of spiritual equipment that Jesus has given us, what we're going to cover today are really three questions. One, who is this enemy? What does God's word teach us about him? Two, how does he work? Paul talks about his schemes or strategies. But three... How has Jesus equipped us to stand firm in his victory daily? So that's where we're going. And it's a lot. We're going to cover a lot. So I encourage you, please lean in with me. We're going to start at Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20. We're going to read that together. And then we're going to pray. Now, I'm, I'm really focusing just on the first four verses of this passage today. But I'm going to read all of it for now so that we can get a good picture of the, of the, of the landscape and where we're headed. And if you want to join me with the Blue Bibles, we're on page 950, or you can read on the screen behind me. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So Lord, I pray that you take this word and you plant it deep within us. Give us the ability to understand and believe what you say. And may it change our lives and strengthen us 
God, that we might not be a people who are easily knocked down, but who stand firm in your victory. In Jesus' name, amen. So from Paul's words here, what did you initially pick up from it? First, I hope you saw Paul's not messing around. He's not discouraged, but he is serious. But second, while he talks about the armor as a metaphor of other things, when he talks about Satan or the, sorry, the devil or the spiritual forces of evil, these are not metaphors. He is real. So who is he? Who is this enemy? And so we don't fall into the ditches of over or underestimating him. What does Scripture tell us about him? We'll start here. God's enemy is real. And he's working to sabotage God's good work in and around us. Now, when I'm reading this, I don't know how you felt about it. When I'm reading this, I kind of wish Paul would have taken a little bit more time to explain to us what he means by the devil. Right? Paul, can, can you... Ex- you know, illuminate for us what this means. But he didn't hear because the church in Ephesus already had a very strong understanding of who this enemy was. If you go back to places like Acts 19, Acts 19 tells the story of when Paul was in the city of Ephesus. And it says that there were many people there who once dabbled in sorcery and evil spirits, things of the like, before they came to Christ. So there's many in that church who are well aware of what Paul means. But still, that doesn't mean we are as readers today. And so we need to dig into Scripture and move just beyond just Ephesians in order to get a full understanding of who he is. So what can we gather from the rest of Scripture to understand who God's enemy and our enemy is? Well, he has many names. But they all portray his obsession with undermining God's work and contaminating all that's good. So first, Paul referred to him as the devil. The devil means slanderer. His job, as he sees it, is to malign or slander God's reputation and character among us and in the world. Or you may know him better as Satan or the Satan which means the adversary. Whatever God is building, he's trying to tear down. Whatever God is doing, he's trying to undo. Whatever God creates, he tries to counterfeit. Now, to be clear, God and Satan are not equal in power. While Satan arrogantly opposes him, God alone is all-powerful. And we'll get to that more at the end. But other than the devil or Satan... You may have also heard him referred to as Lucifer. Like, where does that name come from? Well, we have to go back to the Old Testament for that. Starting in Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 tells us about this being called the morning star. Morning star translated into Latin is Lucifero or Lucifer. He's the son of the dawn, meaning he was bright, he was beautiful, but he tried It says, to ascend the throne of the Most High God, and in turn, he was thrown down from heaven to earth. Now, Ezekiel 28 fills out history for us in the story a bit more. And it refers to him as a beautiful guardian cherub. Guardian cherub basically means a warrior angel. All right? A warrior angel, which until... 
he, wickedness was found in him. He was a warrior alongside God, but when he turned against God, God threw him down. And Jesus himself confirms this. When in Luke 10, 18, he says, He recounted the day he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So you put all this together. That Lucifer, the devil, Satan, was once this beautiful, bright angel, proficient in battle. But when ambition and pride consumed him, he led other angels in an attempted rebellion against God. And see, all of that then helps us understand when we go back to Paul in chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 12. Paul talks about these other things, these rulers, these authorities, these dark powers, these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What in the world is that? Well, all of these things are referring to not people made in the image of God, right? He says not flesh and blood, but they're referring to spiritual beings of some sort. And the heavenly realms speaks of an area of existence or a realm of existence beyond what we can see, but, but, it is, but it is a spiritual reality, not a physical one. And these rulers and these authorities or these other spiritual beings are those in an alliance or under the control of God's enemy, whether they be demons or evil spirits or some, some sort like that. Again, Scripture doesn't give us all the details of all of these. With all, it doesn't answer all of our questions. But what we do need to understand is that all of this is evil. And its main intent is to undermine God's purpose and contaminate all that's good. You guys still tracking with me? All right, you, you okay? So, so now let me ask, like, what does all this have to do with us? Right? Well, since God deeply loves us and made us to image him, we are his enemy's target. So beginning in the Garden of Eden, which is where the whole story of Scripture begins, Satan disguises himself as a serpent to lure the man and woman away from their creator. In his desire for revenge, he enticed them to rebel against their God like he did, knowing that if they did, God, the holy God, would be forced to banish them from his presence. Because how can a holy God be around sin? So Satan came and told them the same lie he believed. You can be your own gods. Why settle for this garden? You can be your own gods. And when they consumed his lie that gave birth to sin, and at that moment, that impulse towards sin, that attraction toward it was birthed within them and is now shared with all the children of Adam and Eve, us. That there is in each human being this, this, this dark impulse or this attraction to sin. Sin's exciting. You know, it's, it's interesting. It makes, our, it makes our heart race. And we think that by following it, we'll find some sense of greater freedom in our lives. But Paul says, man, don't be fooled. All of that's part of his, the enemy's deception. Because really, you are slaves to sin. And so since that day, Satan's evil aim has been the same. To blind us from the reality of who our God is so that we will not turn to him. And he doesn't just work on a personal level. He also works on a corporate level. And he's often referred to as the God of this age 
or sometimes the ruler of this world because he is devising twisted philosophies and moralities in order to blind entire societies from the reality of the God who loves us. But let me tell you, if you belong to Christ, you are not a victim to any of this. You are not. And that is what this series is all about. And we'll get there more in a moment. But before we can learn how to resist him, let's answer our second question. How does he work? In in chapter 6, verse 11, Paul refers to the devil's schemes or strategies. Well, what are those? Because before we can know how to resist the devil, we need to understand his strategies. Again, his highest goal is to keep us from God. He doesn't give a lick if you believe that he exists or not. He does care if we turn to, worship, follow God's way. And so that is why he wants to blind us to the reality of the good news of Jesus because the good news of Jesus is the way. And by faith in Jesus, we come into relationship with God. But if you do belong to Christ, man, that means that you're no longer owned by God's enemy. But that still doesn't mean that he leaves you alone. Because if if Satan can't keep us from Jesus, he certainly will work real hard to keep our focus off Jesus. He's no dummy. He knows that we are more than conquerors through Christ. But if we, he can get us sep, you know, distanced from Christ, distracted by other things, he, he can leave us paralyzed and ineffective. And once in that place, he can seduce us to compromise or deceive us toward straight up discouragement until we are left ineffective. Well, how does he do this? Well, first, he may try to get our focus off Jesus and onto our ambitions. One of the first things he said to Eve is he said, Hey, if you disobey God, you can become like God. What's he appealing to there? Her sense, a sense of ambition. He says that I can be greater. I can imagine in this moment that he's even filling her imagination She knows there's a tree in the garden she can't eat from, but he's filling her imagination with all the fruit she could ever want. And she can eat it whenever she wants. And no one has to tell her what she can and can't do. She can be her own boss. She can have people praise her. She can have glory, fame, money. All of this is beginning to fill her mind. And she can have it all because you deserve it. And as he begins to distract us from Jesus and toward ambition, he may also try to fixate us on our pleasure. Eve says in Genesis 3 that she saw that forbidden fruit and saw that it was pleasing to the eye. And in that moment, instead of focusing on everything she already had that God had given her, he gets her to focus on the one thing she doesn't have. And instead of her saying, I want that, eventually the I want it turns into, I need it. I need it. That can make me happy. And then after she bit, isn't it always interesting that sin needs company? That it's never content with just one person, but she brought Adam and Eve, and on his, I'm sorry, she brought 
Adam in. And of his own volition, he bought the lie too. But with pleasure and ambition, then Satan works to consume us with pain. After Adam and Eve sinned, then came the fear. Then came the shame. And then they began to turn on each other. Adam blamed Eve, and Eve, her heart was set against Adam. See, man, the devil doesn't create every struggle, but he will certainly utilize them to fill us with shame, paralyze us with fear, fill our relationships with bitterness. And once he's done that, and he's got a a way in, he begins to amplify that shame until it becomes self-hatred, intimidate our anxieties until we are crippled, inflame our bitterness into grudges. And when he finally suffocates us in the darkness of all of these things, now we can't see God. And we're, we're trapped in a sense of hopelessness and our faith is shot. And this is exactly what First Peter talks about. That like a lion on the hunt, our enemy will do whatever he's able to, to separate us from God so that he can then consume us in darkness. And he is ruthless He has no principles. He lives by no Geneva Convention. And what is his main tool in all of this? Targeted deception. Which he uses to bait us into sin or despair. If you remember, he's also called the father of lies. Deception is his language. But how he goes after you is going to be different from how he goes after me. Because he knows each of our weaknesses. He knows our our tendencies, our interests, our past abuses, our history. And he's logical and he's crafty. And while he's not, again, responsible for everything that goes wrong in our lives, he will certainly try to leverage those things. So my question to us as a church, and I strongly encourage you to consider this prayerfully, When are you most prone to take your eyes off of Jesus? Have you noticed those areas of potential weakness where you may be prone to compromise or tempted to fall into a state of despair or depression? You know, one of those areas for me historically has has been finances or money. God has done a lot in my life in that area. Um, But man, during, during seminary, this was one of the biggest struggles for me because we had very little money. Like paying the $2 tolls on the interstate in New Hampshire hurt. <laughs> Gas Shelby, it's real. But when our finances weren't looking good, I had this nasty little habit of taking my eyes off of Jesus and just putting them on my spreadsheet. And, I, and, I, and thoughts would come to my mind in that moment. What kind of provider are you? Where is God? <laughs> Why don't... Why don't you just quit all this seminary stuff and go get a real job? And so many times I bit that hook. And I got stressed. And it caused a whole lot of unnecessary fights between Shelby and me. And those fights were on me, not her. But thinking back on all of that experience, I realized, man, my battle was not primarily over money. It was not. It was spiritual. Would I remember and believe that my God is faithful and that he provides? Or would I consistently give way to fear and just stare at that spreadsheet? 
Now that's just one of the ways where the enemy tries to exploit me, but what about you? Are you aware of where those areas are that you might be prone to take your eyes off of Jesus, where you might be knocked back from time to time, you're tempted to compromise? Because this enemy is looking for any open doors he can to bait us into sin or despair. You know, the struggles that we all face, finances, careers, families, in our minds, our bodies, all these things are real. But the enemy wants to exploit any of them he can. If he can just get us to compromise or just fall into discouragement. But once we begin to identify this area, what do we do about it? Because Paul told the Corinthians in his letter to them, he said, hey, once we know the schemes of the devil, don't let them out with us. We can stand firm, but how? How? Well, we could not defeat Satan, but our Lord did. And he fits us with his armor to stand firm. Notice, back in Ephesians 6, it does not say, man, if you're struggling against the Satan's or the devil's schemes, use good old willpower and fight through it. No, because he knows that our willpower is tainted by sin. We are not strong enough on our own. That before Christ, Paul said earlier in Ephesians, he says that we were just following, our willpower was following the cravings of the flesh. We were just chasing after whatever desires or thoughts or ambitions or pleasures we wanted. And frankly, we acted a whole lot like God's enemy. And we deserved to be condemned for it. But when God had every right to charge us with the treason that we committed, Paul said later, because of his great love for you, our mercy-rich God made us alive together with Christ. And because he loves you, he sent his own son to rescue you and me from the grip of evil and sin that, that was upon us. And what's amazing is that though Jesus came, Satan was intent on destroying him too. And he maliciously devised up this Roman cross to take him out once and for all. But the very tool that the enemy intended to destroy him became the very instrument Jesus used to bring about our salvation. When he paid the penalty of our sin with his sinless self on that cross. And Colossians adds that when Christ rose from that grave, at that moment, he disarmed the powers and the authorities, meaning he robbed the kingdom of Satan of its last ultimate weapon, death. And he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That when Satan contrived sin as the path to death, Jesus came in sacrificial love and grace to make the way to life. And if you believe in him, if you place your faith in him, that means you, my friend, have been delivered from the domain of darkness and you've entered the kingdom of his beloved son. And there is a day coming that God has already promised. Revelation 20 says when, when, when Satan and all those who ally with him will be thrown forever into the lake of fire. But until that day, Christ says, I've given you all the spiritual equipment you need to stand firm. He never promised us a struggle-free life, but he did promise to give us all we need to stand firm in it. 
And I want us to check this out because this is so cool to me. That back in Isaiah 59, it describes God as one with armor on. He had a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation and other armor. Well, I think Paul is thinking about all of that as he penned these words telling us, if you belong to Christ, now his armor is yours. You don't manufacture it. It's a gift from God alone. That all that is his is now yours. His truth, his righteousness, his peace, faith, salvation, spirit, his word, his full armor, not partial. All of it has been given to us so that we might be able to stand firm. And man, we're going to unpack all of that in the weeks to come. But at least for now, I want us to realize God's enemy is real. He is evil. He is strategic. But God has given us all his spiritual equipment so that we can stand firm in Christ's victory. And so as I close, I want to leave us with three questions that I want us to consider. Not just consider. I want us to pray and ask God about it. And the prayer part is huge. It's key. Because prayer is where we shift our focus off whatever it is and back to God. But I want us to ask three questions. One, what are those areas in my life where I, I, the enemy tries to exploit me? God, where does he try to exploit me? Where am I tempted to compromise or grow discouraged so that I, he tries to make me ineffective for Jesus? Like I said earlier, I realized one of those areas for me was money and finances. What about you? But then two, what are the lies that you tend to bite in that area? You know, my personality, I really like to feel in control. I'm sure no one else here can relate to that, but that's me. I love to feel in control. And I love to see that things are going to work out. And so, so many times I would look at that spreadsheet believing the lie that I will only be okay, we will only be okay if the numbers on that sheet says we are. Instead of trusting God. And when it happens, I would become so focused on trying to feel secure again that I would stop looking at what God had led me to do. And then I would start picking fights with my wife whenever I felt like she spent too much money. I'd get all passive aggressive about it, right? Like, what's wrong, babe? Nothing. No, seriously, what's wrong? I don't know. Like, why, why did you have to buy a $5 latte today? And that never went well. <laughs> never went well. Always ended up in an explosion of some sort. But that's, just, that, that's how Satan works, right? He's not just content on stealing our financial peace. He wants to steal our peace in our marriage, in our families, in our jobs, in all of our lives. And he won't rest until he does. But once you've identified that area of weakness and the lies we tend to bite, the most important question is number three. What is God's truth that combats that lie? How will you begin to see the struggle differently in light of God's goodness, his truth, and his purpose? And we're going to hit more on this whole truth idea next week when we talk about the belt of truth. But for me, I learned I had to go back over and over and over again to Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus said, don't worry about the clothes. Don't worry about the, you know, where the money's going to come from. But seek first God's kingdom in his way. He takes care of the rest. 
And I had to keep training my brain to believe that. Coming back to it over and over again. And man, I'm so thankful that God worked that in me because I see the way he provided over and over. But his enemy is real, evil, and strategic. But he has given us all the spiritual equipment we need to stand firm in Christ's victory. Amen, everybody. All right, stand up. Let's pray together. God, I pray again. That what your word says, may, may you give us the faith to believe so that we will not be left unprepared or scared, but instead fearless, confident, and bold in your love. God, we know that you've already won the battle. You've won the war. And one day you will finally give, him his, give Satan his last eviction notice. But in the meantime, may you strengthen us. And we ask you, God, show us where are the areas that he tries to exploit that maybe we're not aware of? What are the lies we tend to bite? And what is the truth, your truth, that speaks right to that lie with healing and hope and redemption? Thank you for what you're doing in and among us. God, strengthen us as a congregation, as a church, as a community that we will not be easily moved, but that we can stand strong in faith and be courageous in all things. And for your glory, for your honor, amen.